we need to talk about the rule of law. A podcast by Verfassungsblock and Deutscher Anwaltsverein. need to talk about the penal system. In European criminal law, there largely is consensus that criminal law should be ultima ratio, that is, the last resort when the law is applied and executed. However, criminal law and the penal system at large have also proven to be an efficient way to silence political opponents and citizens turning against the government by literally barring them from raising their voice in public. We have seen examples for this in Europe, and we will have to talk about that today. But there are more aspects to this topic. How are prison systems being used as a tool by autocratic-leaning governments? And how is the relationship between the penal system and the rule of law in the area of freedom, security and justice that the European Union aspires to be? This is what we'll discuss in this week's episode of We Need to Talk About the Rule of Law, brought to you by Verfassungsblock and the German Bar Association, Deutsche Anwaltverein, with our fantastic guests. Laurent Baudrier-Girard is a solicitor and the European Legal Director of Fair Trials, a worldwide criminal justice watchdog. James McGill is a solicitor working in public law, especially criminal law, former chair of the Criminal Law Committee of the Council of Bars and Law Societies of Europe, and currently the Council's Vice President. And with Caroline Barth, a professor at the Central European University, teaching human rights law and constitutional theory, and chair of the university's human rights program. I'm Bernard Kokot, a member of Verfassungsblock's editorial team, and this is We Need to Talk About the Rule of Law. Hello to all, happy to have you on the show. I would like to begin by asking you, Mrs. Baudrier, what a penal system in a legal order emphasizing the rule of law would ideally look like. Thank you. Um... Well, in the legal order uh, emphasizing the rule of law, criminal justice systems um, would be fair and effective and respect the fundamental human right to a fair trial because criminal prosecutions and, in and investigations, convictions have severe implications on the person accused. They result in long-lasting stigma, in the loss of employment prospects, in the breakdown of family relationships, and a huge impact on civil liberties, in addition to the potential loss of liberty and imposition of severe penalties. So criminal um, justice measures are some of the harshest measures that a state can take against a person. And for this to be a legitimate use of state power, international law requires that key principles of fairness to be respected. And these principles are essentially designed to ensure fair outcomes, so to limit the risk of people being wrongly convicted, and also to ensure a fair process in which a person has um, the ability to participate um, in the trial in an effective and in an active way. And although we typically look at uh, fairness of criminal justice systems by reference to fairness to the accused person themselves, we can also look at the broader ramifications of a fair an effective system. Broader ramifications that ensure that people in general, citizens, have trust in the criminal justice system. So let me explain. States have legitimate reasons to give law enforcement authorities the powers, legal powers, to investigate and prosecute crime. But this doesn't mean that they have a blank check to do whatever they want. They're rightly required to operate within the law. And one of the functions of a fair and open criminal justice system is to expose whether law enforcement authorities have exceeded their legal powers. This function is fundamental in a system that seeks to uphold the rule of law, ensure the fairness of the criminal trial, and remove in this way incentives for law enforcement authority to act outside the law. So beyond the impact of the accused, assessing whether law enforcement authorities have acted within their legal powers in a way that is proportionate is also a key element to a fair criminal justice process. And that key check on the legality and the proportionality of the use of law enforcement measures occurs at trial or shortly before trial. It, it takes place when you have an independent and impartial court um, where you have meaningful standards, safeguards, therefore, 
that are in place to enable access to courts, to enable access to justice for individuals who are subject to these measures and seek to challenge them. So these courts are key and they need to be impartial, independent as well. They need to be sufficiently well-resourced, funded, staffed, equipped to carry out this key function. So to, to wrap up, to answer your question, a legal order um, that emphasizes the rule of law um, would be characterized by the key principles that are legal certainty, a prohibition of arbitrariness in the use of executive powers, independent and impartial courts to which people have access, effective judicial review, including a respect, um, judicial, effective judicial protection for fundamental rights and equality before the law. Thank you very much for this overview. Professor Barth, the prison system in Hungary and the penal system at large doesn't quite seem to meet these requirements. Could you tell us how matters stand there? Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's right. I mean, so if you uh, take a look at the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights or the decisions of the European Court of Justice, then it's clear that prison conditions in Hungary, I don't know what term to use, but I would say uh, they are miserable. I mean, uh, this is clearly stated in the uh, in the judgment rendered five years ago, I mean, in the pilot judgment where Varga and others, and it's evident that where a high number of prisoners have less than 2.5 square meters living space or and where the sanitary conditions are substandard where food is unhealthy where there are extremely limited opportunities for out of selectivities uh, then there's a systemic a general problem that will certainly result in finding a breach of the prohibition of inhuman treatment and in prohibition of inhuman treatment is an absolute right that does not allow for either derogation under extraordinary conditions nor curtailment with reference to financial or economic scarcity or lack of manpower. Well, what could be the reason for the uh, for, for, for the poor prison conditions? Now, from the statistics, it appears that uh, that the, that, the, that the main reason could be the tough sentencing practice of the courts. Uh, well, in principle, prison overcrowding resulting in inhuman treatment could, I stress in principle, could indicate a high rate of criminality in the given country or that there's a high number of serious crimes in the given jurisdiction and therefore prison sentences are longer than in other countries. However, it's a common place in criminology that there's no clear correlation between crime rates uh, and structure of criminality on the one hand and the number of people deprived of their liberty on the other. So if you take the numbers in Europe, I mean, the highest cr crime rates are in, in, in Belgium, in, in, in France, in Spain, or Portugal, and the lowest is, for instance, in Estonia, a country where the number of prisoners, uh, the number uh, of people incarcerated is extremely high. Uh, and also Hungary is far behind the countries with the highest crime rates. So it's not crime rates that uh, explain the high number of people deprived of their Liberty. Also, the, the 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 ratio of violent violent crimes, so serious violent crimes, in Hungary is relatively low in the international comparison. So I think that 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 it's reasonable to assume that it's rather the harshness of criminal policy and the court's sentencing practice that explains the high number of individuals deprived of their liberty. Uh, it might be surprising, but, but, but what we see that three decades after the collapse of the Soviet camp, the first seven countries in the European Union with the highest prison population are post-Soviet and, and post-communist states, 
And what is surprising, at least for me, to me that the three Baltic states, which otherwise have a relatively fair human rights record, are among the first on that list. Uh, although I must say, I mean, that the Baltic states have made considerable progress over the last decade, they have reduced the number of inmates considerably. Uh, if we compare the numbers, let's say, 10 years ago with those of today, this was not the case in Hungary. Uh, there was rather a slight increase in the number of in in inmates per inhabitants in Hungary over the last decade. Uh, now, I should, however, add that the high number of individuals serving their prison terms or held in pretrial detention does not necessarily result in prison overcrowding. Uh, just to demonstrate the absence of this causal relationship, we can, I can again refer to the Baltic states. There, in all of them, prison occupancy is below 100%. Uh, the overcrowding rate is even lowest in Latvia, a country with the highest prison population. Now, as to Hungary, I mean, the story started, I mean, five years ago with the pilot judgment of the European Court of Human Rights. In a case, I mean, the applicants were Varga and, uh, and others. Hungary was found in violation of Article 3, I mean, the prohibition of inhuman degrading treatment of the European Convention of Human Rights. Uh, first, because of the miserable prison conditions, and second, because of the lack of an effective remedy. Now, there have been several applications of the same time submitted to the Strasbourg court, and therefore the court found that all these applications originated in a widespread, recurrent, persistent problem within the Hungarian prison system. And the court also advised the Hungarian government to use more non-custodial, punitive measures. And what was also alarming, according to the judgment, was the high proportion of pretrial detention uh, detainees who actually should benefit from the presumption of innocence, uh, the extremely high number of pretrial detainees among those deprived of their liberty. Now, the, the, the immediate reaction of the Hungarian government was, I would say, positive or at least acceptable. Now, first in line and that was not too laudable, but anyway, I mean, in line with its populist rhetoric and criminal policy, the government announced the large-scale prison-building program. Uh, however, practically nothing happened out of the new per uh, prisons that were planned uh, and to be opened by the end of last year. It was only one that was, that was built. Uh, but in addition to that, a new law was passed rapidly and it expanded the use of alternatives to pre-trial detention and introduced new preventive and, and, and the compensatory scheme, uh, a domestic compensatory scheme, a fair compensation scheme with access to courts. Uh, and this happened in, in, in 2016. Uh, but soon after this laudable change in legislation, the populist attitude gained again the upper hand when a Hungarian court awarded compensation to Roma victims of school segregation. Now, you see, the case had nothing to do with prison conditions. Uh, however, members of the government felt that it was the right moment to question and even attack the compensation scheme for inhuman treatment of inmates. They claim that clever lawyers and NGOs make good money of the so-called prison business and criminals were awarded huge sums as they said that they do not deserve. Uh, now these statements of politicians uh, were followed by a decision of the government to suspend the statutory payment ordered by the courts for inhuman treatment and this is a clear a blatant defiance of the ruling of the European Court of Human Rights and also a breach of judicial independence. And this I would like to stress. It's namely part of judicial independence, termed sometimes in scholarly writings as fundamental independence, that court rulings are not amended 
are not annulled by other branches of government. Now, this decision of the government was then confirmed by parliament. Uh, so the law said that until June 15 this year, no payments, no payments to be made. Uh, then with reference to the pandemic, this deadline was later further extended. <clears throat> and the, 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 the law also called upon the government to submit a bill on compensation, a new bill on compensation for inhuman treatment by May of this, this year. Uh, and that is what, 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 what Parliament proclaimed, I quote, will eliminate the abuses in this area and will guarantee that crime victims are properly, swiftly and rapidly awarded the amount of compensation they are entitled to. Now, what is positive in that law is that it is admitted that prison overcrowding and poor detention conditions were the cause for compensation claims, and therefore the government is called upon to take measures which guarantee that prison occupancy will not exceed 100%. The deadline was set at September, uh, the end of September this year, and of course, I mean, due to the pandemic, this probably has not been observed. Uh, but I have no exact information. But anyway, I mean, the law says that the government has to ensure that prison occupancy will not exceed 100%. Uh, now, um, I think that the new law is under preparation. Uh, now, from the wording of the February Act adopted by Parliament, we may reasonably expect that considerable part of the amount awarded by the courts as compensation for inhuman treatment will be redirected to victims to cover their claims that arose out of, out of the crime, which on the one hand, I mean, is, 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 is quite fair, I mean, to, to, to care for the compensation of crime victims. But at the same time, I mean, those who had suffered uh, serious inhuman violations, breaches, will not get the money. Uh, yeah. So, uh, well, on the surface, you know, uh, it's all about square meters and cubic meters that can be remedied by, by building new prisons or general amnesties if the government decides not to change its punitive criminal policy. Uh, but I think that there is even more at stake since all that happened in Hungary before, around and after the decision of the European Human Rights Court in, uh, uh, five years ago, it this portrays perfectly the concerted attack on the rule of law and human rights, so typical for the last 10 years in Hungary. While this entire rule of law and entire human rights policy can well be demonstrated on how prison overcrowding has been coped with, how the problem had been communicated, how this has been handled, pointing at the same time to a general backsliding of the rule of law in Hungary. So it's not just about, it's not just about, I mean, the whole story is not just about treatment of, of prisoners, but it reflects, I mean, the way it was treated, the way it was communicated, I mean, the steps that have been taken. This demonstrates quite well, I mean, this general backsliding in, 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 in the rule of law in my country. Well, it shows first the cynical disregard or non-observance of international obligations. Well, this is evidenced first by the suspension of payments, which is at the same time, same time the suspension of the execution of a, a pilot judgment of, the, of an international court. So a cynical disregard of the country's uh, international obligations. Second, uh, uh, the government yet before the uh, Varga decision, uh, decided to soften the categorical express requirement of cell space by providing that three three point square meters living space 
is to be guaranteed, and this was the change, as far as possible. Okay? By this, by this the previous rule, which was a must, okay, has been transformed into an aspiration norm, or as lawyers would say, it was transformed into a lex imperfecta, that is a rule with no sanction attached to its non-observance. And this again shows the cynicism and how human rights standards are valued. Uh, and third, while the Strasbourg Court's decision and the subsequent measures to implement the decision were abused by the government in that they appealed to, to the populist attitudes shared by many. It's not by chance that the suspension of compens compensation sums for inhuman treatment uh, in prisons was joined up with the Prime Minister publicly expressing his indignation over the compensation granted by a court decision to Roma children who were found to be victims of school segregation. So by this, the Prime Minister could mobilize anti-Roma attitudes that unfortunately are prevalent uh, in this country for intensifying uh, hostility towards those inmates who enforce their legitimate rights. And, 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 and okay, but let us be generous and accept that appealing to people's prejudice to appeal to the evil in man is part of politics and must not be followed by action and is therefore no explicit attack on the rule of law or attack on human rights. Um, however, stigmatizing those who enforce their legitimate claims was coupled with a general campaign against those who have an immense role to play in protecting human rights in preserving the rule of law Lawyers who assisted inmates were accused of doing lucrative prison business. Under attack were primarily the lawyers working for human rights NGOs, who were, of course, labeled as Soros-financed NGOs. And these NGOs, the Helsinki Committee, among others, I mean, which, which, which is a very effective NGO, uh, in spite of the, of the government attacks, they have previously branded and stigmatized as foreign agents by the law that was adopted in 2017, which was found in violation of EU law by the European Court of Justice this summer. Even more disquieting is the denunciation of courts, who by awarding compensation did just what the law required them to do. This is all the more alarming since the judiciary is constantly under pressure, since it seems the only institution uh, that has not been fully captured by the regime. But that's another story. I mean, how 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 the the the, the constitutional court was captured and and, and 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 what steps have been taken by the regime. So, so we, we see in, in the prison system uh, and the penal system in Hungary um, the same large-scale attack on the rule of law that we yeah, witness yeah. Exactly. in other domains. I mean, that, that, that's what I wish to demonstrate. Yeah. I mean, because normally, yes. if you look at the, at, the, at the rule of law report, there is not that much on criminal justice. There is not that much on prison system. But I mean, these deficiencies in the prison system and how the whole problem is handled, it clearly reflects the general attitude towards the rule of law. That's what I wish to demonstrate. Thank you. And I think since there are attacks on the rule of law in other member states of the European Union, Mrs. Baudrier, could you tell us a little about penal systems and their problems in other member states of the European Union? And are there any alarming trends to be witnessed right now? Um, well, yes, there are several alarming trends in uh, different EU member states. I think the key one that Carolee has described very um, in very much detail very well is the impact of the general attitude towards the rule of law on criminal justice systems. Um, and another trend that I want to, to focus on, the long-standing trend that uh, Carolee has also pointed out, um, is in relation to pretrial detention. 
uh, from our perspective, uh, this is at the core of our work. It's the issue of the overuse of pretrial detention and the ineffective implementation of defense rights. Um, we, were, we joined efforts that led to the adoption um, at EU level of procedural safeguards for suspects and accused persons in criminal proceedings. A key in particular, the right to access a lawyer at the very early stages of criminal proceedings from the point at which you are first arrested and held in police custody. Before you are even interrogated, you have a right to access a lawyer. These are fundamental key procedural safeguards. But still, there's a huge amount of work to be done um, to ensure that these rights are actually translated into practice and are effectively implemented at a domestic level, at a local level. Um, and there's also a massive gap in the legislative framework at an EU level in terms of procedural safeguards, and that relates to pretrial detention. That immense power that states have to lock up someone who is presumed innocent, uh, for days, for weeks, even for years in some countries where there's no maximum duration on pretrial detention. So this is before any court of law has found them to be guilty. And in Europe, we're talking over, over one-fifth of our prison population. So that's over 100,000 people today are held in pretrial detention. So why so many? Why this long-standing issue? Um, in our view and from our research, it simply remains too easy for prosecutors to ask for pretrial detention and for judges to send someone off to prison. There's a problem with judicial culture. There's an ease uh, with which prison appears to be the appropriate option. And we see that prison is overused as a result of different failures at a policy level, at a legislative level, and at a practical level all of which are well documented in plenty of research, particularly in the fields of social sciences and criminology. Um, so this practice, this ongoing practice of keeping defendants in detention without a specific legal basis or clear rules governing their situation is incompatible with fundamental rights, with principles of legal certainty um, and protection from arbitrariness. And the EU member states in this respect are, of course, all subject to the European Convention of Human Rights, but as we've heard from Carolee, their obligations are often disregarded. It's not only a problem in Hungary. Um, and we've seen that the European Court of Human Rights has regularly indicated that overuse of pretrial detention is directly associated with prison overcrowding and causing a cause of poor prison conditions that European jails face today, including in Belgium, in Romania, and France, where prison conditions are so bad that they fall below a fundamental right to be free from inhumane and degrading treatment. And most recently, in respect of France, um, we had a condemnation from the, EC the European Court of Human Rights in January in respect of its poor prison conditions. And in contrast to the follow-up that Carly described in Hungary to such a ruling, the French government hasn't taken action, but instead we've seen the courts step up the Court of Cassation and the Constitutional Court, who have issued rulings asking the government for, to adopt legislation uh, to remedy this situation, recognizing that the current legal framework, which does not enable a person to seek a remedy before the courts in respect of their poor prison conditions, um, is not constitutional. So for years, um, we've seen most in most of European jails, prison overcrowding, prison number rising, prison seen as a solution to all sorts of social ills. Um, tough on crime politics tell us that we need to put people behind bars to keep us safe, which as Carolee has pointed out, in research, there's no link between a prison population and crime rates. And recently the COVID-19 crisis has shown us that it doesn't have to be like that. At, you know, prisons were at the epicenter of the pandemic, and the only way to preserve public health and safety and to protect the health, the life of people in detention was to reduce the number of people in detention facilities. And during the first wave, we saw many countries, we counted up 18 EU member states, taking such measures to reduce prison populations. But we need to make these changes sustainable. Um, and that means uh, controlling and strictly limiting the use of pretrial detention. And I'd like to point out that greater financial investment in prisons, as was suggested in Hungary, is absolutely not the answer to problems presented by overcrowding. 
they'll just continue to grow in the absence of clear and effective legal frameworks. Uh, and for us, preventing excessive pretrial detention remains um, a key priority uh, at a regional level because the overuse of pretrial detention remains the first key alarming trend. And second, and I'll be briefer on those, our second long-standing problem in criminal justice systems is discrimination. We see disparate impact on certain communities who are disproportionately overrepresented in prisons and in criminal justice system. And this has largely been ignored and ignored by uh, governments, ignored by policymakers, ignored by the different stakeholders who are participating in this discrimination. And then following the death of George Floyd in the US, the European Parliament in June this year passed a resolution recognizing that people of color across Europe are subject to aggressive policing and prof profiling. And the European Commission has followed up with an action plan against racism. But existing studies in Europe confirmed that discrimination extends beyond policing. Uh, it extends throughout the criminal justice system. We've got academic research confirming, for instance, to go back to pretrial detention, how illegal factors such as national origin or place of birth are de determine prosecutorial and judicial decision-making in this respect. So another, the second key alarming trend is this continuing racism across the criminal justice system and um, the inability to recognize that beyond policing. And third, third, the other alarming trend is um, part of this inevitable shift towards digitalization. Again, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has created a real opportunity to speed up the digitalization of justice system. Um, this may have benefits, efficiency benefits in particular, but as part of that trend, we also see threats to defense rights through the use of technology, for instance, to replace in-person hearings, people attending their hearings in court, in person, or the replacement of a um, remote technology instead of in-person legal assistance of a lawyer attending their client in person, in police custody. We're also seeing increasing use of artificial intelligence in criminal justice. This automatic decision-making systems used to inform or influence criminal justice decisions and outcomes. These are packaged for us as helping make our justice systems more efficient, but at what cost? Artificial intelligence is based on existing police data and will only reproduce and amplify existing discrimination in the system, leading to more unfairness and injustice. So this is another, the third really alarming trend. And then I'd like to highlight a fourth one, the increasing state intrusion on our private lives. This ability of state authorities to gather digital data from anyone, giving them a pretty complete picture of each and one of us, our movements, our healths, our conversation. We're seeing such a blurring of the lines between surveillance and criminal investigations, are we talking about a surveillance legal framework, a, a criminal investigation framework or measure? This blurring that's happening is very worrying. Um, and it's become relevant again in the context of the recent of the pandemic, the ongoing pandemic, where many countries introduced legislation to broaden the powers of authorities to collect private information, including a person's movements and contacts from their mobile phones, all this in the name of public health. So, um, four key worrying trends from our perspective uh, that mean that it's definitely not a time to sacrifice safeguards and rights in the name of efficiency. Thank you very much. Um, Mr. McGill, the European Union itself has begun to weigh in on criminal justice. The European arrest warrant, for example, serves as a framework for extraditions between member states. And against the backdrop of what we've just heard about the shortcomings of penal systems of numerous member states, how would you evaluate the European arrest warrant from a rule of law perspective? And after everything we've just heard, do we have to see the principle of mutual recognition and mutual trust that is instrumental to the European arrest warrant as contaminating the rule of law on the EU level? Yeah, I have a very mixed view in relation to the role of the European Union, because on the one hand, a, the arrest warrant was brought in with many, many shortcomings, and it was brought in against a political backdrop 
of the 9-11 terrorist atrocities in New York, which effectively meant that the law and order agenda had the upper hand and that parliamentarians who had reservations didn't express them. So we, we got a measure introduced that had shortcomings and was utterly disproportionate, a problem that we are living with today. The procedural safeguards that were promised as a counterbalance to the warrant didn't happen in a unified way as they were meant to, but have been brought in incrementally. But that being said, there have been significant improvements and the increased use of black letter European Union law uh, in the areas of interpretation, right to information, access to a lawyer, has improved the Strasbourg jurisprudence, which is good on principle, but is extremely slow moving and has some very strange anomalies in it. So I think that the, the, the general assessment is a positive one. As you know, the parliamentarians had a review of the operation of the warrant in the course of this year, and that has thrown up a number of concerns. A major concern, clearly, is the disproportionate use of the warrant. And in certain civil law traditions in particular, a distinction is not drawn between trivial crime and serious crime, and that therefore the surrender can be sought of somebody to countries typically in the East for stealing bicycles, robbing chickens, this sort of thing, a, which are not what the warrant should be intended for. But one positive uh, thing to emerge from the current pandemic and public health uh, concerns is that member states may now look differently at options that they've had for some time, including the investigation order and the supervision order, and see using those measures as an alternative to implementing the warrant as a custodial transfer surrender of a prisoner from one jurisdiction to the other. So I think that we may be seeing European Union rights through a different prism and member states who had been inclined only to look at the law and order agenda may now also look at other agendas, the, 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 the individual rights, but the general public rights uh, in terms of public health issues. So I do think that there's going to be quite a different focus in the next two to three years based on our experience of the last nine months. And that's very timely because, uh, as you know, uh, national courts have become increasingly frustrated at the limited scope they have to refuse surrender. And if the requests are reduced because there are alternatives, that will calm the mood and concern on the national court level. Um, thank you very much. In Turkey, a state still applying for membership of the European Union after all, the penal system is relentlessly used to silence political opponents without due process. Are there any examples for this in the EU itself at the moment, Mr. Barth? Look, I'm, 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 I was always wondering why, why even the most horrible dictatorships resorted to criminal trials to eliminate their political opponents, whereas, I mean, there have been cheaper ways, I mean, to elim eliminate them. So just think of National Socialist Germany or Stalin's Russia. But of course, I mean, tri these trials had an important propaganda function to pay, but to elaborate on that would, would take us too far. Uh, so what is certain uh, is that those countries that aspired for membership around uh, 2000 and around, they certainly would not have risked admission by by blatant violation of of fair trial standards in order to 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 eliminate their political opponents. Well, but the world has changed, and 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 what we see that even in member states. Uh, those in power are inclined to use criminal law to silence political op opponents, although this is a very delicate matter because, uh, well, on the one hand, we have to protect democracy against attacks, I mean, against the democratic regime. Uh, and this has to be done resolutely. This has to be done with determination. Well, the example of, of 20th century Germany, I mean, the, the collapse of the Weimar Republic 
I mean, reminds us that that um, there is a need for the so-called militant democracy and, and also the use of criminal law is one of the means by which democracy can be protected. But anyway, I mean, what we see is not the protecting militant democracy, uh, but, but, but rather, I mean, the abuse, I mean, of the criminal justice system to silence political opponents. And even in case uh, these, these, these trials or these proceedings do not end with a conviction, I mean, the lengthy process may ruin the honor of the opponents and it can keep them out of the political arena for a very, very long time. Now, the question, I mean, whether this can be prevented, because there are indications, I mean, that this happens also in member states. I mean, it's not only in, 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 in Turkey. Uh, uh, I think that this can be prevented. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm an incurable uh, optimist, uh, but I think it can be done. But for this, we need to resolutely guard all elements of the rule of law, and I stress all elements, uh, starting with the precise, with the clear formulation of criminal statutes, uh, that do not permit arbitrary uh, and broad interpretation. Well, that's that that's a problem, of course. I mean, in in the case of political offenses, I mean. So so, but anyway, we have to do all in order to uh, preclude the opportunity of of using criminal law provisions in an arbitrary way. So this is one thing. I mean, precision, uh, clarity foreseeability, okay? And should legislation disregard the requirement of clarity, precision, and foresee foreseeability, then there must be well-functioning, powerful, independent constitutional courts or high courts to inval invalidate such statutes. And we have to guard all the procedural guarantees uh, uh, that law has enumerated here. I mean, that, that, that starting with the presumption of innocence, then through access to lawyers, and first and foremost of the impartiality and independence of the, the judiciary. Uh, and this, I think, is why the attacks on the independence of the judiciary in some member states uh, must definitely not tolerate it. So it's not the, the independence and impartiality is the number one. I mean, if you if you take the so-called fair trial rights, okay. So, but but what I would stress that we have to guard all these elements, and because if one of these elements is weakened, then the whole whole building may collapse. Thank you, Mr. Bart. We have talked about how delicate the penal system is uh, in the context of the rule of law. And we have talked about the EU itself now engaging in criminal justice. And in the context of anti-corruption measures, the European institutions in 2017 decided to establish a European public prosecutor's office with own prosecutorial powers. Are we on the way towards a European penal system? And would that be a step in the right direction, Mr. McGill? Um, well, I, I, I'm not sure that I completely uh, would be on the, 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 the same page with that. I mean, I think that the difficulty that we have is that the practitioner awareness of the opportunities to use the mechanism of the union uh, to promote uh, fundamental rights is not where it should be. And that is partly due to a failure on the part of the member states in providing a training resource. I mean, typically through Eurojust, uh, there is ample training for judges and prosecutors, but the training is not made available to defence practitioners at anything like the same level, which means that the uh, resources that are available in terms of the legal mechanisms are underused. Uh, and I know that Laurie, for instance, is doing a lot of work on this and in the CCBE, we're trying to raise awareness and the European Criminal Bar Association are adopting the, the same approach. Uh, but the reality, I think, is that 
the opportunities are there, but they're underappreciated. And it requires a certain level of consciousness raising a for practitioners representing their clients a, to invoke a, the measures that, that, that there are available and the 267 reference to the court is obviously one of the key um, opportunities in that regard. Thank you. And to conclude our discussion, I have a question that I would like to ask the three of you, which is, can you imagine a point in the near or in a more distant future where the area of freedom, security and justice turns into an area of extradition, unprotectedness and injustice? Mrs. Baudrier, would you like to start? Um, well, we're seeing uh, populist, um, tough-on-crime policies uh, that link incarceration with security, um, with growing prison populations, as if putting people in prison makes us safer. And we're seeing fundamental rights being balanced out with the so-called right to security as a way to, to cancel out fundamental rights, as a way as if one goes against the other. Um, and recently, we've seen uh, national emergency measures taken since the outbreak of the pandemic that have threatened fundamental rights further in the name of public health. Um, these, this impact was felt not only in terms of the extraordinary powers that were granted to governments and the reduction of parliamentary scrutiny and judicial oversight, but also in terms of the severe curtailments of a range of fundamental rights, uh, including defense rights and the right to a fair trial. Um, so these, this is alarming, but uh, I want to be positive and to call for resistance for us to resist this trend, because the key role of human rights is to act as a check on power, to protect the rights of people who, who's, uh, who are most vulnerable to abuse, people who are overlooked or forgotten, people who are not valued, people who are marginalized or demonized, um, those who are targeted by populist politicians uh, or not protected by majority <laughs> parties, um, those that don't help politicians win. So to aver avert this risk of injustice, of arbitrariness, um, we need to continue working on promoting fundamental rights. And we have regional institutions that are strong and that need to take leadership here, the Council of Europe, through the Convention on Human Rights, the EU institutions, through the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. We have the Treaty on European Union, the common values um, on respect for human dignity, freedom, democracy, equality, the rule of law, human rights. All of these are sound basis for the EU taking a lead role in evaluating and supervising fundamental rights protections and rule of law across member states. But these regional institutions also need to engage and involve different local stakeholders, national human rights institutes, civil society, engaged academics, brave lawyers and independent judges. We need to strengthen uh, the watchdog functions of these national actors um, in order to make sure that we don't um, inadvertently slip towards an area that you've described as extradition unprotectedness and injustice. Thank you very much, uh, Mrs. Boudrier. And I've noted that you've chosen quite similar words than uh, quite, quite words quite similar to those um, President-elect President Joe Biden um, chose over the weekend, calling for um, the era of demonization to end now. Um, maybe this is, is a task for our time. Um, Mr. McGill. Well, I suppose the first thing I would say is that we always have to be on guard, that we watch developments to ensure that they are not regressive and that uh, hard fought for freedoms are not eroded. But I'm looking at this from the very special perspective of being in Ireland, where Brexit is about to impact on part of our island and on the United Kingdom generally. And I would have to ask myself the question, where would I be happier? in the European Union with all its problems, or as a standalone United Kingdom without access to the Court of Justice. Uh, their politicians simply don't understand that they're still uh, within the Council of Europe and that cases can still be referred to the Strasbourg Court. But the reality is that the measures that are progressive 
which are for the benefit of all citizens, will not be available through the Luxembourg court to people in the United Kingdom. And we're all perfectly well aware that for political popularity issues, member states will introduce very anti-citizen pro-law and order measures. But when they're capable of being challenged uh, by reference to the Charter, uh, there's a protection there. And the United Kingdom are giving away that protection. So for my money, I will happily stay in the European Union. Thank you, Mr. McGill. Um, Mr. Bart, finally. Yeah, uh, well, actually, uh, history shows, and, and it's not only cooperation within the European Union, but in general, I mean, if uh, cooperation uh, uh, intensifies, I mean, between states, this normally uh, results in overcriminalization and and, 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 and and not the other way around. So, so we have to be aware. I mean that 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 if there is stronger cooperation, there is always the risk. I mean of of overcriminalization and tougher sanctions. And I think that when the principle of mutual recognition was extended to this area, I mean of of of, of uh, the, the justice area, everyone was uh, uh, knew that whereas in other areas, deal with this will result in in more liberty. In the area of justice, this will actually strengthen the, the the state power, and we have to be aware that that that's the that's that's the price that we pay for that, and that's the risk. And I think that those institutions that may counterbalance, I mean, this tendency that are not welcome, that can counterbalance this tendency. And I mean here now, well, once more, I mean the European Human Rights Court, the, the, the European Court of Justice, but also domestic courts. I mean, the, the, the domestic national constitutional courts could also have a role in, 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 in banning this tendency, I mean, of, of overcriminalization and tougher sanctions and, and, and uh, the move towards a police state. And I, I must say that that I, I think that once 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 they they realize I mean that 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 that's their role which which they did but but we have to be on guard as 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 James said that they should not forget I mean that that in order to have this equilibrium I mean these uh, courts have to be not only kept alive but strengthened and we have to care that their decisions are in fact implemented and not disregarded. Thank you very much, Mrs. Bourri-Girard, Mr. McGill and Professor Barth for talking about the penal system with me. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of We Need to Talk About the Rule of Law. Please join us again next week for an episode on refugees and migration law. And in the meantime, we appreciate your feedback on Twitter and Instagram with the hashtag Law Rules and on Verfassungsblock. See you next Wednesday.